Welcome, everybody. I have the great pleasure of welcoming you to the LSE for this online event today. My name is Florian Voss, and I'm an assistant professor in political behavior at the Department of Government here at the LSE, and also an associate member of the Electoral Psychology Observatory. I'm really pleased to be here to welcome a fantastic panel of speakers to the LSE to celebrate not only Global Elections Day, but also the first anniversary of the Electoral Psychology Observatory, or in short, EPO. Of course, as with every anniversary these days, we can't really fully replicate the in-person experience of celebrating together. I think many of us still remember the really wonderful opening ceremony last year, um, but we are nevertheless thrilled that you're all here today and curious to hear from our panelists, of course. One of the limitations of holding the event online is that we sadly could not include everybody who has offered to contribute. Um, but we're immensely grateful uh, to you for being here in the audience today and offering your support. We are, of course, extremely lucky to be joined by Professor Michael Pruter, the director of the Electoral Psychology Observatory, and by Dr. Sarah Harrison, the deputy director of the EPO. Michael and Sarah are both based in the Department of Government, and my colleagues here, and are experts in electoral psychology and behavior. They are also the co-authors of Inside the Mind of a Voter, uh, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2020, and which I wholeheartedly recommend you read. Um, obviously, in the wake of the storming of the US Capitol, we are now all talking about electoral hostility and about the many profound implications you know, of the losing side of an election not accepting the outcome. And I think it is no exaggeration um, that both Michael and Sarah have been thinking about these type of questions for a while and even had the excellent idea of fielding an electoral hostility parameter in the United States in the spring last year. And I think that is only one example of how they have been thinking ahead of the developments that we are all you know, now witnessing. And I think another way of how they have been ahead of the curve is really when it comes to realizing the implications of their work, um, the implications that the work has for practitioners and the administration of elections. So it is really no surprise that we are joined today not only by academic experts, but also by distinguished uh, practitioners, by really a group of distinguished practitioners. So I'd like to welcome um, Adam Tremont, who is the Associate Director and Head of Public Polling, uh, of Political Polling at Opinion Research, which is an online research agency who run regular voting intention and political surveys. And today we'll be looking forward to hear the results of some recent polls on the theme of electoral hostility. Furthermore, Thomas Hicks, is commissioner for the Federal Electoral Assistance Commission in the United States and has served on that commission since 2014, having been nominated by President Obama. He was chairman of the commission for two terms and has focused his efforts on voter access. So I could not imagine a better person to talk to us about electoral administration today than Thomas. Dr. Sandra Obradovic is an associate researcher at the Electoral Psychology Observatory and lecturer in psychology at the Open University. Her interests are focused on how the psychosocial dynamics of identity, power, and history shape intergroup relations in domestic and international, in international contexts. Finally, our final speaker is John Davis, who is CEO of the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, which strengthens parliamentary democracy and relationships around the Commonwealth. So a warm welcome to all of our speakers today. I very much look forward to hearing your insights into the threats posed to the sanctity of elections today. 
For those of you in the audience who are Twitter users, um, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE COVID-19. Um, this online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a, a podcast, subject obviously to no, there not being any kind of massive technical difficulties. As usually, um, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to our panel. So to submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. So questions will be submitted by myself and I will pose as many as possible to our, um, our panelists, our distinguished panelists. Please let us know your name and affiliation. And we are obviously, as always, particularly keen to hear from students, alumni, and incoming students as well. Yeah, but now um, I would like uh, to hand over to Professor Michael Bruser for, his, uh, for the start of his presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Florian. And, and again, thank you everyone for coming. I mean, as uh, Florian said, there are limitations to some extent uh, to having the, uh, the event online, but there are also some advantages. And, I think it's really brilliant for us to be able to get people from all over the world and we'll be keeping track of where all of you are, I'm guessing sort of from Australia all the way to the US uh, and much more. So um, thanks again for coming. And um, as Florian has said as well, uh, we are uh, very moved in a way to celebrate our first anniversary with you. And, and I hope that many of you remember all the events we had last year, both at the LSE and in uh, the UK Houses of Parliament. Uh, all very exciting. It feels like a long time ago to be able to sort of escort everyone in a big group, you know, from uh, the LSE all the way to Westminster, the way we did, but um, it was quite exciting. And I'm sure we'll have many more opportunities to celebrate live events again, uh, all together in the future. So the question today, as, as um, Florian has mentioned, is about whether electoral hostility, which is something which uh, Sarah Harrison and myself I've been studying for a long time, is threatening the sanctity of elections. In other words, the fact that people are taking it for granted that elections resolve problems, resolve differences in a democracy and accept those results. And the research we are proposing to talk to you about today is research we wouldn't have been able to do without the great uh, institutions supporting our research, uh, notably the European Research Council uh, for our advance grant on um, electoral hostility and the Economic and Social Research Council um, of the UK, which supports our research on first-time voters. Why focus on the sanctity of elections? Well, we've been focusing on a lot of other things. Well, because of that, I mean, those are painful images for many of us, um, heartbreaking, dare I say, um, shocking, call it whatever you want. And perhaps they're all the more shocking that, in a way, all of us could conceive them before those, occur those events occurred. In other words, we both thought that it was inconceivable, but at the same time, there was almost an element of doom in the fact that those events, those attempts to delegitimize the results of a free, fair, and honest election had been announced by people even before the election was run. And because of that, uh, we thought we would be able to share some really important findings with you from two types of studies that we've been conducting. Uh, as you know, we do a lot of different types of works. We also do qualitative research. Uh, we do experiments, including physiological experiments and visual experiments. But today we are going to focus on two series of surveys that we're doing. First of all, election studies, uh, which we conduct in 27 countries, including seven core 
um, countries with multi-year panel studies where we re-interview the same people uh, multiple times across several years. Samples as well, separate surveys for first-time voters, which is such an important constituency because the way people get socialized into electoral democracy defines the way in which they are going to interact with it forever. So those are really long surveys, complex surveys, which uh, we've designed very meticulously and which are run for us by our colleagues from uh, Opinium. Uh, and you'll hear Adam in a few seconds talk about uh, some of the results from the second uh, body of data, which I'm using a bit in my presentation, but which Adam is also going to use, which is the hostility barometer. That's a joint venture between the Electoral Psychology Observatory and Opinium. And we've started running it regularly in the UK since May 2019, the European Parliament elections. And we started doing it in the US as well since May 2020, uh, starting with two first waves. And those are a mixture of regular questions which enable us to track the state of electoral hostility across the two countries and some focused waves, for instance, on organizing elections under COVID and under potential other threats such as terrorism or environmental disasters, uh, understanding how elections and electoral hostility affect Christmas dinners or Thanksgiving dinners, um, our research on electoral ergonomics, which is not just electoral administration, but the way in which electoral administration interacts with the psychology of voters. And we think it's a really important element to bring into account, especially for specific categories like first-time voters, people who are disabled, people who are uh, no longer participating in elections. Let's start with some of the findings. Uh, and before we move on to the findings, um, we are going to play a little game, if you want to think of it that way, which is that we are going to ask you to answer some of the questions which we've asked as part of our surveys. And uh, Nick, who is supporting us, is going to um, send you uh, a question on the screen. You'll have just one minute to answer them, and that's about what you would be doing when you're unhappy with the democratic situation in your country. So if you can just use the first minute to answer that, and then we'll have a quick look at the results together. And you've got three questions in one, so don't forget to, don't forget to scroll down. Nick, do tell me when we're ready and we can show the results. Okay, so by and large, uh, about 13% of you would be likely to abstain. About 19% would be likely to take part in a revolution. And about 33% would be willing or likely to leave the country. Now, for me, those results are very high, but they're also very much in line with what we found in the general public. And this is actually the proportions that we found. What it means is that, in effect, about one in five American and almost one in four Brits would be willing to engage in a revolution or leave the country when they are not happy with democratic outcomes in the country. And when you look at young people, first-time voters, this is over a third of them who are willing to do that. And that to us is a really interesting, important and new findings because it shows the fragility in a way of elections. It means that even though a vast majority of people are still willing to accept the results of democracy, whatever it brings, there is a significant minority who are willing to question them, including physically, including violently if need be, when um, those results go against what they believe it and, and what they want. This is one form of uh, 
consequence of democratic frustration, which is the work that Sarah Harrison does, and consequence of electoral hostility, which we want to talk about. I'm just going to throw in a few concepts very quickly at you. First, first of all, when we talk about electoral hostility, you might feel that this is the same thing as polarization, but theoretically, it's actually quite different. Polarization is something which has been studied um, quite significantly by the literature, including effective polarization, and which comes from the fact that people become more and more radical in their preferences, and as a result, move further apart. With electoral hostility, the difference is that what we claim, the, the psychological mechanism which is at stake, is that for a long time, people have become cynical about their politicians, political personnel, and progressively, this has actually made them become very cynical towards their institutions. And we're seeing that now that form of cynicism and rejection is extending to fellow voters, to normal people, to normal citizens. And the consequence of that, the difference it makes vis-a-vis uh, polarization is that it means that even people who don't really care about politics, even people who are not partisan, have the potential to become violent and have the potential to engage in a resolution, in a re revolution, sorry. The second difference is that electoral hostility is really a psychological phenomenon and a psychological deterioration phenomenon, which starts from not understanding the others to uh, becoming frustrated at them, becoming angry at them, then becoming disgusted and contemptuous towards them, and finally hating them, feeling hatred. That's the ultimate step. So there is a series of psychological states, psychological emotions, which you reach one after the others, and, and I'll show you that in a few seconds. And that's very worrying because it means that hostility, unlike polarization, is very much a cycle. The reason why we witness it very much in our model is because of one very important thing about elections, which is the concept of electoral resolution. And what it means is that there is an underlying assumption in democratic theory, which is that elections are there to resolve differences between people. We never expect everyone in a democracy to agree on everything. That's not the case. That's not meant to be the case. It's healthy. It's normal for people to disagree, to contest um, what you know they believe is right, to have different alternatives, which they consider. But normally, elections bring a sense of resolution, which re-legitimizes the system and makes people willing to accept the results, even if their favorite option didn't win the election. This is what has led, for instance, to what we know as electoral honeymoons uh, in electoral behavior. Electoral honeymoon doesn't mean that suddenly you, you know, voted um, for um, Hillary Clinton and you are going to like Donald Trump. That's not the case. It means that even though you voted for Hillary Clinton, you are going to feel that Trump won the process of the election legitimately and therefore you're willing to give him a chance. And even though you voted for Donald Trump, Joe Biden won the election and therefore you're willing to give him a chance. So this is very much about institutions through resolution giving legitimacy to the system. The problem is that in recent years, an increasing proportion of people has stopped getting a sense of resolution from elections. The third uh, or fourth now uh, element which I wanted to mention to you is the notion of projection and two of them in particular, societal projection and generational projection. Generational projection means that when people vote, they don't only think about themselves and about their generation, but they think a lot about what is going to happen with the younger generations, their children and their grandchildren. And as I'll show you in a few seconds, 
when people stop feeling that their children and grandchildren will live a better life than them, that's when they read, well, then, that's when they reach the next uh, element I wanted to mention, which is democratic hopelessness. And democratic hopelessness is a feeling that things are so bad that they can't get worse anyway. And if they can't get worse anyway, then this disinhibits the most primal and most violent reactions that people might be considering. And finally, societal projection, as opposed to generational projection, is the time when, as you go to vote, you start thinking about what the rest of the country is doing. So in other words, elections are both a very individual decision, but it's also a societal decision. And each of us is going to try and think about what the rest of the country is doing. And if you start feeling that the rest of the country might not be respecting the result of the election or might result to violence if they don't win, then you might start feeling that you could be doing this thing as well. So with those feelings in mind, I've mentioned to you already the level of radical behavior that we can expect. But in terms of hostility as well, bear in mind that a significant proportion of people are saying that they've been the victims of electoral hostility themselves. In the general population in the US, that's about over a third of people who say that they've already experienced angry reaction from others because of the way they vote. And almost a third have already experienced insults. When you move to first-time voters in the US, again, based on those representative samples, it's almost half of first-time voters in the US who say that they've already been insulted because of the way they vote, and over a third who say they've already received some threats. So that gives you a state of the way people experience hostility on a daily basis. But not only do they experience hostility, but they also resort to hostility towards other people. And as I mentioned to you, what you can really nicely see here is that cycle of hostility, which I was mentioning to you with, you know, very soft levels, which people reach very early. And then as time goes on and they become more and more hostile, they start moving towards feeling disgust, contempt, and even hatred towards other people. And if you look at, even just looking at that last pink bar on the right, it says that over a quarter of American citizens say that they feel hatred towards people who vote differently from them. And that's over a third amongst first-time voters. Now, what is really interesting here is that, as I was mentioning to you, this is not just a matter of polarization, but a matter of hostility, which means that even people who don't have preferences, even people who define themselves as neutral, who say they don't care about politics, can feel hatred, disgust, and contempt towards fellow voters. So that's basically the state of play that um, we need to look at um, at the moment. And the reason for it, as I was mentioning to you, is because elections are stopping, are no longer providing people with a sense of resolution. And if you look at those four bars there, they looked at the way in which uh, people believe that elections resolve things even months later. So if you look at the um, UK Brexit bar, for instance, it would ask people when they feel that the Brexit question has been resolved. And that includes people who feel that it has been resolved not just by the referendum, but even by the time um, that uh, the transition period ended on the, first, on the 1st of January 2021. And as you can see, only a third of British people feel that the Brexit division has been resolved. Only two-fifths of them believe that the left-right divide has, has been resolved. And the same in the US, less than half of people believe that elections have resolved the tensions between different types of voters in the United States. That's the problem we face now. If you had looked at those results about 10 years ago, 
significant majority of people would believe that elections would bring resolution to them. And that's just no longer the case, not just in the US, but in much of the world. So we're now going to have, uh, just before my final slide, um, we'll just have uh, a second little poll, which Nick is going to put to you, which is going to ask you a new series of questions about measuring effectively some of your other attitudes um, towards elections. So again, three questions, a minute to answer them or slightly less than that. And again, there are three questions, so please don't forget to scroll. Almost time up, so I'll let Nick give you the last few seconds and then show us the results. Here we go, so first question. So nearly two thirds of you believe that in your country, and I realize that many of you come from different countries today, so that makes it a little bit harder to read, uh, but believe that things will get from bad to worse, which is a very neat and worrying measure of pessimism. Um, so the second question is a bit the other way around, right? Uh, it's about whether you believe that children and grandchildren uh, will live better than our generations. You would want a lot of people to agree, but less than a quarter of you agree with that statement, while more than half of you disagree. And finally, third question, over two-thirds of you believe that, um, um, sorry, that uh, the country will um, people in the country will grow further apart. And again, if you look at the results we got from the survey, they very much mirror what all of you have been saying. Things will go for bad, from bad to worse. That's true for a majority of citizens, uh, both in the US and in the UK, plurality in the US and majority in the UK, if you want. Uh, similarly, very less than a third of people believe that the generation of our children and grandchildren will live better than us. So there is that notion of hopelessness that I was mentioning. And finally, um, there are uh, over half of people, both among uh, British and American citizens, who believe that citizens of our country are meant to grow further apart as opposed to getting reconciled over politics. Now, those are our measures of hopelessness, or some of our measures of hopelessness. And they illustrate what I was telling you. They illustrate that feeling that somehow a significant proportion of people believe that things are so bad that they cannot really, you know, it doesn't really matter if they now do things that they would have never dared to do 10 years ago, like voting for extremist parties or resorting to questioning the result of elections. And you've got majority of people who very often are not only suffering themselves in terms of their economic, social, and political situation, but believe that their children and grandchildren are not even going to get to live better than them. And that feeling, as I was mentioning, is for us in the work that um, Sarah and myself have been writing in, in the book that Florian was kind enough to present earlier on. This is really the triggering element. When people start having that feeling, this is when it opens the way for things like violent demonstrations, voting for extremist parties, being willing to engage in revolutions and so on. Where does it leave us? That's going to be um, my conclusion now. So, you know, that notion that hostility is really a cycle. It's getting worse and worse. And if we don't understand that it's getting worse and worse, then we don't know how we can actually uh, try to find mitigation to it, try to actually bring ways that reconcile people with not only their institutional systems, but with each other. People are increasingly ignoring each other because they find that each other is uh, effectively a frustrating and disagreeable source of disagreement. 
without um, electoral resolutions, elections do get delegitimized. In other words, if people don't feel that elections bring resolution to society as a whole, they are willing to ignore those results. This goes beyond partisanship, and it affects people who don't even care about elections. It's not just a matter of people who are really, really involved, party members and so on, becoming violent. It's even the case that people who you feel do not um, believe in politics and do not care about elections and do not care about parties, representing a danger of being mobilized in the context of violent events. And this is fueled by that phenomenon, which, as I was mentioning, Sarah Harrison is researching, which is called democratic frustration, which is that notion that there is a very significant democratic desire which is being unfulfilled in the eyes of the people. How do we get out of that? Well, the interesting thing is that when we talk to people, the number one thing that people say they want out of elections and out of politics is change. The problem is that very often change has been the reserved field in a way of populists because traditional parties find it very difficult how they are going to bring about change when they've already been in power for many years. And that's what has been so helpful in a way to the Brexit cause. That's what has been so helpful to Donald Trump. Those were people who say that they could represent change because they were doing things differently. I would say that one exception in recent years is uh, the case of Emmanuel Macron in France, who has been able in a way to sort of embody change in a more liberal, pro-European way. And one of the questions is whether centrist moderate people in other countries can bring about change. And again, another exception would be Barack Obama, for instance, in the US. Uh, when he was first elected, he represented something different, which a lot of people could associate with change. But it's urgent in a way to find those way of providing people with those non-populist fruits to change, because otherwise hopelessness is building up. And in that context, unless things actually get better, they will really get worse. And that's really where I'm going to end my presentation today. Um, and I'm going to pass on to Adam Drummond uh, from Opinion, who is going to present to you a number of uh, additional findings from our Ossidity Barometer, as well as the political polling that Opinion does for due observers. So thank you very much. And Adam, the floor is yours. Brilliant. Thank you, Michael. So just uh, you unsharing your screen there just means that the share button moves around the screen. So one sec. There we are. Um, so I'm um, going to talk to you about three polling questions that we've done um, Two as part of the hostility barometer that we've done with the LSE over a period of time, um, and then one which comes from our opinion observer series. Um, because obviously it's yeah, as as anybody's been in the UK for the last couple of years will know, um, yeah, that what is the subject of, of electoral hostility and and um, and polarisation? Well, it's Brexit. So obviously some of the questions are going to be about that. So um, for those of you that are tired of Brexit, I apologise, but it does illustrate some interesting points. Um, so the first question was essentially a series of agree-disagree statements. And we asked um, quite a few. And and one of the benefits, I suppose, of doing events like this over Zoom is that I don't have to apologize so much for the text being really small, So, but hopefully everyone can read there. Um, the point of showing this is that as somebody who's 
like I said, who's worked on polling around Brexit for you know, sort of five plus years, one of the things you realize is that you can basically spot the partisan divide in just about any uh, survey question results. So, for example, if you look at around about the middle to the bottom half of this table, for example, on the whole, Brexit has been a success. You don't need a, a degree of any kind to work out how the 44% who disagree voted and how the 45% who agree probably voted. So most of the time you can sort of see the partisan split in questions. Um, there's something a little bit more interesting, perhaps, in the fact that a majority say we shouldn't have had the referendum in the first place, but um, it's a bit too late for that now. Um, but the point is, um, where do people actually agree? So where do where does agreement transcend the partisan split in that case? Um, well, the main thing is that main, the main thing we can agree on is that we're disagreeing. So the only statements which get strong, overwhelming agreement is the idea that Brexit has divided the various nations of the United Kingdom, and that it's created divisions between generations. Um, and uh, further to uh, to Michael's presentation earlier, one of the things which really has become apparent since the referendum is that age has become much more of a determining factor in being able to predict somebody's voting and political preferences than it perhaps ever was before. Um, so if there is if the only the only points where there is broad agreement is that there is disagreement, there is some more agreement perhaps on some really sort of basic outline possible sort of facts of, of the Brexit situation. So um, basically where um, uh, you can see, for example, that the 57% agreeing that Brexit is making Britain more isolated in the world. Without even looking at the data, you can probably tell that includes the vast majority of the people that voted Remain, but the numbers like just mathematics means that that has to include some of the people who also voted leave. Um, and similarly, the fact that um, there's a majority agreeing that uh, Brexit has given some degree of control back to British citizens um, is, is going to necessarily include some number of people who voted remain. And the reason for showing this is that even on, on thing, you know, the, the exact phrasing of it, of it aside, these are basically kind of as close as you can get to sort of facts in terms of the Brexit debate. And even then there was significant disagreement, but these are as, as close as you get apart from broad statements about disagreement to having some kind of consensus here. Um, I just want to bring in um, a stat then from our Opinion Observer series, and apologies, this is basically a big wall of colour, but this just comes from one question, which we asked last week, um, basically asking how do you think Brexit has gone now that we are out of you know the transition period and Brexit is a tangible, visible thing in borders, in the news, etc., rather than just being um, hypothetical. And I think that the reason for showing this, I think, is because it possibly illustrates um, some possible light at the end of the tunnel as far as the Brexit debate goes, which is the fact that okay, the consensus position such as it is thus far is that it's not going brilliantly. Um, and you, you have, you know, the, the biggest single block is that I expected this to go badly and I think it has. But one of the things that I think has, has changed in the Brexit debate since, at least since um, the Conservatives won the 2019 election, is that some of the partisan disagreement or the the, um, the party disagreement, or, or rather, sorry, the cross-party nature of the Brexit divide. I think there are signs that some of that is fading because of the fact that, as I mentioned, Brexit is becoming a tangible thing, it's becoming a visible thing, but it is also clearly becoming various, uh, you know, much more associated with one party. And the fact that it is a majority conservative government implementing this, which means that the, the most interesting row, I think, here is second from the bottom when we look at Labour voters who voted leave. Admittedly, these are those who stayed with the Labour Party in 2019, but Labour voters who voted leave um, overwhelmingly aren't really giving a Conservative government um, the benefit of the doubt on Brexit. So by introducing this more kind of partisan lens, I think what what broadly sort of happening is that um, 
it's becoming a bit more of a sort of party question rather than a much more kind of fundamental sort of identity question and therefore it's possible that it's kind of returning to the realms of kind of normal political issues in that to the extent that um you know we can see something tangible um it's possible you might see a bit more unity there around the fact that it's not really brilliant rather than looking at you know rather than one sort of utopian vision competing with another utopian vision where there, there can be sort of no real resolution so the third question I want to look at is, um, again, it's a series of agree and disagree statements about um, more kind of fundamental democratic principles. Um, so again, there's a, a long sort of series of questions, and these were all asked um, in the UK, uh, hostility bombs wave in January. And this crucially happened post January the 6th and uh, the sort of Trump event, as, as we can call it. Um, on the face of it, we have very strong agreement with some basic sort of principles of democracy and accepting the the results of democratic outcomes. So, you know, seventy plus percent agreeing that you can you, you can never justify opposing the result of a democratic vote, um, and also big majorities saying, "Oh, I don't think that can ever be justified in the UK," or "I don't think that can ever be justified in other advanced democracies." So, the thing about the the US of uh, yeah, the the events on on the capital is that. Not only was was that you know under the direction of a leader who most people in Britain really didn't like, which made that a little bit easier for for them to choose a position on, um, but also it's it's the number of people believing that there was, there was fraud in the U.S. election in the U.K. is probably significantly lower than the number of people believing that in the U.S. in terms of percentage. Um, the difficulty with asking any kind of question about this, and this is something that we encountered when we were trying to do polling for the US election, when we were trying to ask questions about should the candidate you support refuse to concede if they um, if they, if they believe that uh, there has been fraud? And the difficulty with asking that is that by definition, you in the question have to kind of define whether or not the claims are truthful or not, or whether they're legitimate claims or not, which obviously then kind of skews the question. And this is why it's really, really difficult to, to measure, but, and why I think the this next set of results is a little bit concerning, because at the same time as everybody saying, yes, you should never oppose the results of a democratic vote, and, and you know, general sort of positive sentiments about democracy, you have significant minorities here. So, you know, 38%, 33%, 32%. Um, saying that they can understand this idea and that they can possibly see circumstances in which they would support it. And again, that point about whether objections about fraud are legitimate or not is kind of crucial because obviously if, you know, if, if in the frame of a question you say they're illegitimate, then people aren't really going to support them because who's going to support a, an illegitimate claim? But it's the fact that people believe it might be legitimate and what they would do if they believe those claims were legitimate. And that's where the sort of danger zone comes in because you can see uh, in the in the bottom statement there, 32% agreeing that I think it's legitimate for people to take direct action to prevent the outcome of an election if they think that is unacceptable, which I, it's very difficult to reconcile that with the 70 plus percent agreement that you should never object to the outcome of a democratic vote. And there are definitely some people who are agreeing to both statements there and who and the, the sort of mental jujitsu in their mind that's, that needs to happen there, I think, comes entirely down to whether or not they think the claims themselves are legitimate. So the final sort of slightly scary set of numbers I want to end with um, is the fact that as well as a significant minority believing that it's legitimate to object to um, the results of an election if you have good grounds to do so, and how you define good grounds, of course, is the question, I think that the ground is potentially quite fertile for this, um, especially because the top two statements here refer to um, events in other advanced democracies, and the bottom two refer to events in our country, in this case, the UK. And 
you can see the basic suspicion of or openness to the possibility that electoral fraud and illegal tampering with election results is happening is quite high. And obviously the results for the top two questions are, are, are in some cases quite a bit higher than the results for our country because there's still a little bit of, you know, kind of sort of national, national pride there. It might happen in other of our democracies, but it won't happen here. Um, but the fact that you have 53% of UK adults saying that it's likely that some people in the next 20 years will illegally tamper with election results in our country. That's obviously quite a broad statement. And, and as somebody who lives in Tower Hamlets, where there was a mayoral election overturned by the government it, within you know, the last decade, the, there's a question of scale here as well. But I think what this really illustrates is that there is possible fertile ground there for somebody to essentially run the same kind of campaign that Donald Trump did, where spending many, many months in advance of an election, planting the seeds of possible fraud and then trying to act on those afterwards. And the danger is that if people believe that it's, it's um, acceptable to act in the support of legitimate claims, then that question of legitimacy is going to be crucial and therefore it's potentially quite a sort of dangerous situation. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Adam and, and Michael, for these really striking and I think also, also worrying numbers, really. And I think um, I would like to bring in now our, our panelists. And um, we are, you know, we are, of course, very, very lucky to have um, Commissioner Thomas Hicks with us um, to comment on those results in the first place. And I would like to hand over to him and then bring in the other panelists afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank Professor Bruder for uh, inviting me here today. Uh, LSE has a special, special place in my heart in that 29 years ago last week, I um, watched the Super Bowl from LSE because I studied at the University of London at Birkbeck College and I had a bunch of friends who were at LSE. So we uh, partied a little bit too hard that night, but we still had fun. Um, I struggled a lot doing this uh, presentation. I do these presentations a lot. And the main point that I, I'm going to try to get out is that I'm a government official who deals with the administration of elections. But I'm also a middle-aged black man living in America. And so I see that from two different perspectives. Um, the events of January 6th really touched me because I worked in the Capitol for over a decade. And so to see the Capitol um, basically in, uh, the insurrection that took place um, where people were bringing the Confederate flag through the halls of the Capitol looking for members of Congress to basically overthrow um, a legitimate election that was perpetrated under lies uh, was very touching to me. Uh, my job would have been to be on the floor that day or be in my office to help with the count of the electoral college vote. So I text a few members of Congress that I still know who are up there who were terrified of that day um, running for their lives. I was very close to a lot of the Capitol Hill police officers because I would go in every day and to see the, the frustration and to see the the, the destruction was just very overwhelming to me. Um, here in the U.S., uh, and so I will talk a little bit about some of the prepared remarks that I have, um, but I wanted to thank you all for, for inviting me here today. 
Um, here in the U.S., we recently marked the annual celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy. And the month of February is dedicated to Black History Month. These are important to note because of the history this country has of, to include synthetic oppression of African-Americans, women, immigrants, and other traditionally margin, marginalized communities. That legacy is shameful, uh, like I said, of what happened on January 6th. So, so much as I was relieved that the uh, inauguration um, took place, um, I'm really ter annoyed that I wasn't able to actually go because of the pandemic and the heightened level of security, or even to bring my teenage daughters who would be able to see the first African-American woman um, sworn in as vice president was just heartbreaking. So, um, you know, from last month alone, we saw this, the assault on our capital and the integrity of our electoral system um, by the former president um, just, you know, is un unimaginable. It would have been unimaginable 10 years ago. And while these efforts ultimately failed, this doesn't mean that our faith in the de democracy, um, the democratic process is, is over. And, but where do we go from here? Um, I'll try to try to save some of that for the question and answer piece, but the election assistance commission is a bipartisan commission made up of two Democrats and two Republicans established under the 19, the 2002 help America vote act, which came about after 2000, which was also a frustrating election to many Americans. Our job is to work closely with electoral, uh, election officials to provide a meaningful ballot on election day. So how do we do that? Mostly by distributing funds to the states. And in 2020, we distributed over $400 million to the states, uh, mostly for COVID-19 uh, pandemic relief so that states can purchase PPEs and uh, purchase new voting equipment um, to speed up the process of counting ballots. And I'm proud to say that our agency got that 400 million out within 30 days. Um, I think that, you know, our most important piece that we do is the clearinghouse process to give states the, and local authorities the best practices of running the elections. And in a vacuum, I know that that might sound pretty bureaucratic and boring, but, um, I always think back to the late Congressman John Lewis, who I considered a friend, um, because what he would say is that those um, who he knew all too well that the rules of the game, including on who plays the game, are di dictated by the outcome, which we saw through the results here today from the surveys. So I don't want to take up too much time to talk about um, some of the things that occurred, but, you know, I'll, I'll end on this, um, that a lot of the disinformation of what caused the insurrection on January 6th occurred because of disinformation. And so do we, do we want to uh, rein in social media? Do we want to rein in um, the media in general that perpetrated a lot of, the, a lot of these things or politicians? Um, 
a lot of that falls under our First Amendment free speech right. Um, I went to law school, graduated from law school, uh, but I also hated law school. Um, but the one case that I remember is Times v. Sullivan, which always said that you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater. So you have a right to say your speech, but you don't have a right to say it in a violent way that would cause um, an insurrection or harm to others. So, but that doesn't mean that Americans don't have a fundamental obligation to know where that disinformation is coming from or to have a responsibility of themselves because disinformation has always been there, whether or not it's been Democrats saying Republicans vote on, or for, for people saying Republicans vote on Wednesday, Democrats vote on Thursday. But the fact that disinformation, it's instantaneous now, means that we should know where the um, sources of that are coming from. So government, social media, uh, civic organizations have a, a obligation to educate the public about these threats. Um, and I see that in my own family where my parents or friends will say, well, I saw it on Facebook, therefore it must be true. Um, so we need to do a lot to ensure that we don't ever see what happened on January 6th occur again in, in the United States or around the world. And so I'll save the rest of that for, for questions, but I want to thank you again for allowing me the opportunity to voice a few of my opinions here today and to uh, participate in this valuable discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Commissioner Hicks, for those impactful words, really. Um, and I would like to hand over to uh, Dr. Sandra Bradovic um, to come in uh, with your perspective. Great. Thank you, Florian. Um, and thank you, Thomas, for starting off the panel comments. I think uh, that was probably the best uh, way to do this. Um, and I'll try to follow up uh, appropriately. So I wanted to pick up on the results from the first time voters. Um, I think what's interesting to me is that compared to the general public, we see first time voters experiencing higher levels of electoral hostility, but they're also experiencing more of the negative emotions of the sort of hostility cycle. Um, they're willing to engage more in radical behavior, but interestingly have lower levels of hopelessness compared to the general public. And I think there's something happening among first time voters that is really important to explore, uh, particularly if you want to make sure that we're sort of socializing them into becoming habitual voters. Um, here, I think it's important to think a bit about how group dynamics are evolving in the political sphere and the role of emotions. And I know we've talked in the presentations, uh, there's been talk of negative emotions, but obviously there's also an important role of positive emotions for people when they're getting involved um, in electoral processes or in any form of civic engagement. Um, I think what Michael was mentioning is we're seeing a pattern of incompatibility in worldviews. Uh, we see continue to see a sort of breakdown in sort of perceptions of a lack of social cohesion, a breakdown of the social fabric, and with that, a growing nostalgia for past times when the group, the community, um, the nation was actually a bit more um, together and unified. And oftentimes, ironically, this tends to express itself in a nostalgia for war times when the nation was united against external threats instead of now facing maybe internal threats and divides. 
But what seems to be happening to me here is there's a bit of a hardening of group boundaries and a blurring at the same time of the lines between the personal and the political. And we know in social psychology that when group boundaries become impermeable, so when we see that we cannot or we feel that we cannot as individuals improve our circumstances, that is when we're mobilized to act with our groups. Now, of course, um, group action and collective action has positive effects. I think this is reflected in the high voter turnout in both the recent US election, but also in relation to the EU referendum in the UK, showing a healthy sign actually of civic engagement. On the other hand, when people are disappointed with these outcomes or perceive them to be illegitimate or unresolved, then there's scope for collective action to escalate. And we see a higher willingness with first-time voters to engage in more radical forms of behavior, which in turn might actually be explaining why they feel less hopeless because they're considering different alternatives to sort of traditional political engagement and ways of challenging the status quo. So for me, what's interesting and what I think is a key question in this research is how can we harness some of these positive benefits of emotionality in politics in terms of people feeling proud and excited and, you know, that they're fulfilling sort of a civic obligation um, and thereby engaging more with the political sphere. Uh, how can we harness this positive benefit even after the votes have been counted and people might feel a lack of electoral resolution? I think this becomes especially important among first-time voters for whom initial disappointment with the outcome of an election might deter them from participating in the next one or might fuel uh, a sort of alternative form of, of political and more radical participation. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Sandra, for those insights. And I'll hand over to uh, John Davis, who has obviously also worked on improving parliamentary democracy across the Commonwealth. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Florian, and thanks everyone for, uh, for having me here today. Uh, as you say, working on parliamentary strengthening from the UK Parliament as part of the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, uh, but also part of what we do is election observations. So uh, I'll take that prism on, uh, on these results. Uh, because I think one thing that's clear when looking at the UK and the US is that between those two places, the power of emulation or the extent to which what happens in those two countries will influence others is, is a key thing to see. Uh, and I think the results, uh, well, I won't try and go into the results as such, but if you see what is being said about both the UK and electoral processes and people's experiences of them, I think from the results of my own experience in the UK, Up until now, the focus has been less about the events on the day. Quite often in election observation, a lot of the focus is on the process and you know, were the free and fair elections on the day, what did it look like? And I think quite often the media tend to focus on that side of things. I think in the UK so far, uh, I'd be interested to know others' views, that that hasn't been the vulnerable part of the process. It's been the campaign, it's been the media, as Tom was touching on. It's been some of the political discourse. In the US, as Tom has said, and others It's much broader than that, and it is the, the actual process, the counting, the, the process which has become vulnerable. And that is watched. And I suppose just an anecdote to reinforce that, we're about to uh, run a, 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 a virtual election observation mission for the Turks and Caicos Islands, one of the UK overseas territories. And I shouldn't go into this too much, but again, it shows there you've got someone which is, looks both to the US in a lot of its political culture, but also to the UK because of its history. And they are and will be watching. And we are, I think we, will we are already seeing some of the effects of what has been happening, particularly in the US. Uh, at, 
including in the keenness to make sure that even in these times there could be election observation. I think for any of us in that business, trying to find ways to do proper election observation as thoroughly as we can, even despite COVID, is really key. Otherwise, sort of two Commonwealth-type reflections, if I may, and it's as much questions back to, uh, to Michael and Adam, I'm afraid. Uh, one of it is one of the few things that sometimes brings together the very disparate political experiences around the Commonwealth is that politicians normally have to genuinely go out and make people vote for them. Uh, and for wherever you're from, whatever size of the electorate, whatever sophistication of their political background, normally there's a shared experience of actually having to convince people with genuine arguments to vote for them. And it's really a question of whether we think that some of what you're reporting on there means that that's less important. Is that going to become less a common factor for people and for bringing politicians who, who then have to work together? Will they not have been through that same very formative experience that certainly in democratic countries they have all been through in one form or another. And just finally, uh, are, do you think those, do we think those patterns are going to exacerbate the problem of diversity in political representation? Uh, is some of that negativity, hostility, frustration just going to amplify the challenge that most countries have in, in making those who want to be represented, and Tom touched on this, uh, you know, is it actually just going to make it harder to get those underrepresented to want to be part of this, this hard game? But I'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you. Thank you, John, also for the comparative perspective there. And uh, now I'd like to hand over to uh, Dr. Sarah Harrison, who is the Deputy Director of the Electro Psychology Observatory. Sarah. Florian, and thank you for, to the, the other panelists and the, uh, my colleagues who were presented earlier. Um, I'm going to keep it quite short because I realize I'm the last of the panel and I'm sure you've all had enough of us talking to you and we want to hear your feedback and, you know, your questions and, you know, provide some interest in um, stimulation for the debate. As we've seen from the presentations and comments from my colleagues on the panel, in ideal terms, elections, when elections function well, they can bring citizens a sense of closure by restoring legitimacy and hope in the system. By contrast, when resolution fails to occur, hopelessness can take over, especially when voters feel helpless and unheard and they fail to see how elections can resolve differences. Whilst elections in many ways bring out the best in citizens, sometimes it also brings a moral righteousness that can also raise the question of whether electoral democracy is fit for purpose or whether it is indeed capable of bringing democratic closure to societies. Even those citizens who claim not to care about politics increasingly dismiss electoral outcomes as illeg illegitimate. If voters no longer feel that elections bring closure and do not trust that they embody the true majority will, the danger is that they may cease to feel bound by the outcomes of the democratic process and the social contract. The atmosphere is really important as well. It can determine the capacity of the institutions to bring closure and resolution. Hope or hopelessness and a sense of integration are on the contrary alienation from others. Here a spiral of negativity can be observed, leading to, de to, leading to deteriorating hostile feelings, starting with a sense of, a, of an inability to understand others, but later degenerating into frustration, anger and contempt and even disgust. However, there's still some hope at the end of the tunnel. Hope and hopelessness do not necessarily represent the opposite ends of a continuum. We found that high levels of pessimism also may be compatible with hope, where citizens can still believe that ultimately their children or grandchildren will benefit from lives better than theirs. Many citizens seem willing to accept significant sacrifices if they believe that there's 
will, this will in, at least result in better conditions and situations for future generations. In summary, our research has shown time and time again in countries all over the world that the majority of citizens show the necessary goodwill required to embrace and inhabit roles as voters and thoughtfully consider their relationship to others in elections. In this sense, elections tend to bring out the best in people. The vast majority of voters tend to do what they believe to be right and do so in ways which are projective and socially minded. Yet in an age of frustration, hostility towards people who vote differently seems to have less to do with personal disagreement and often more to do with conceptions of society and a, con a contrasted collective identity that are pitted against each other. Yet if governments can lead on reconciling divisions in society and if focus can be redirected towards working together for the collective good, there is hope that citizens will place their trust yet again in the democratic system and allow the healing process to begin. And I think it falls upon us as each individuals to kind of really try and see our role as voters and inhabit that process and bring um, some sense of closure to elections in the end. Many thanks. And I just pass back on to Florian now to open the discussion and we look forward to hearing your questions. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Sarah, and to all other panelists uh, for their insights. And now I would like to hand over to the audience. If you have a question, uh, please just uh, type it into the uh, Q&A box. Um, don't forget your, your affiliation and, um, and who you are, and, and we will call on you. Um, the first question actually um, already comes from, um, from Talia Kennedy, who's a sixth form student. And I think that question goes to, to all of our panelists. Um, Tally was interested uh, in knowing, uh, so do you think that the electoral hostility that we observe might destroy the sense of really consensus politics that has really, you know, dominated um, the UK for, for a couple of decades, really? Um, and and, and, and she's really asking, so um, what do you propose, you know, how, how, do, how might that affect, you know, like centrist, centrism and, and basically centrist viewpoints in the, in the country? It's an open question to the entire panel. So, John, you can go first if you like. Well, I'll be brave and go first. Um, uh, and I speak it's my personal views rather than the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association. My bosses are all members of Parliament, so I have to be slightly careful. But um, I suppose what I'd observe, and, and it's partly picking up what Adam, I think, was saying uh, about a possible slight um, uh, source of coming together, or at least a, a, a agree less of a disagreement. Uh, around Brexit, because I think certainly from my almost literal normal viewpoint within the UK Parliament, there is a sense that certainly those who are the actual members of Parliament who are physically involved in day-to-day -day politics um, were not able to conduct normal consensual politics and policy making and tackling all the other problems that the UK needs to face like any other country. And I think there's a sense now uh, despite COVID, that there's more of that going on. There's more work across parties on specific issues. Um, so I, a slight sense of optimism on that, actually, in the UK context, I would say, but I'm not sure what others would think. Does anybody else want to... Michael, please. Yeah, I think, well, I'm, I'm partly sharing John's optimism and partly not. Um, Talia, I would answer your two questions differently uh, from each other. In other words... I think that the sense of consensus politics, to me, is gone. Uh, and I'll explain why in a second. But I actually don't think that this will end uh, the importance of centrist viewpoints. In fact, that might reinforce them in many ways. Um, 
the reason why I think that consensus, consensus politics is pretty much gone is very much for the reason that Sarah just mentioned. In other words, that even though people disagree with each other, even though people really believe that the other side is doing something vibrantly wrong, including, you know, we, we have to also take people's accusations at face value, you know, as Thomas mentioned, you know, many Republican voters incredibly um, are probably genuinely persuaded that the Democrats cheated. It, it might be completely wrong. It might be, you know, completely crazy. It might be nuts. But I, I do believe that some of them really genuinely believe it. And the problem we have is that, indeed, you know, we, we are dealing with incompatible moral conceptions. And, and, you know, as Sandra was mentioning, incompatible visions of society. And I think that's why the Brexit debate is effectively only starting and not ending, because I think it had absolutely nothing to do with the EU. I think it had everything to do with incompatible conceptions of what the UK is as a society and what the UK should be. And I think that, you know, when you've got such a, a, a clear divide, whilst people are righteous about them at the same time and believe that they are believing something which is almost, you know, absolutely true, uh, which, which almost goes beyond democratic uh, questions, then I think it creates some dangerous uh, rifts. At the same time, I don't believe it's the end of centrist politics because I think that what we could think of as the populist threat in general has forced a lot of people on the centre-left and the centre-right to consider that they were fighting a much bigger enemy than the ones they were used to. And I think that there are a number of moderate Labour, moderate Conservatives, moderate Republicans, as well as moderate Democrats, who believe that, in a way, what is at stake here is much bigger than a left-right divide, much bigger than, you know, a division between, you know, different parties. It is really about needing to ring fence, in a way, uh, the vision of those parts of societies which believe that science is unquestionable, who believe that uh, the terms of the democratic debate are not up for negotiation. In other words, it should be sorted by elections and so on. And I think that, in a way, this has forced a lot of people, both among the elites, but also among regular citizens, to reconsider what are really the important divisions or the really important problems they should be facing. And one thing I wanted to mention as a, as a sort of note of optimism, because I really share Sandra's point that the question of first-time voters is really important and essential here. Even though they tend to be quite hostile, even though they tend to be quite worried, they care about elections. You know, when you ask them about whether anything should replace elections as the baseline for, for decision-making in our country, they say, no, absolutely not. They want elections to remain at the heart of things. In fact, young people are much more likely to want to go to a polling station, to vote in person, to really enjoy the experience themselves. They are excited about it. They want to really make the most of it. And I think that there is that sort of democratic hope, democratic will, democratic desire, which is really our best source of hope here. And which is the reason as well why even the consensus might be gone. It does not necessarily mean that democracy has to be. And I think that's you know what we can, we just need to figure out how to get to that goodwill somehow. Thank you, Michael. Um, I'd now like to move on actually to the next question, which comes from uh, Regina Santinelli, who is a LSE uh, graduate student. And, and she's really asking a question, which I think is mostly addressed to, to Commissioner Hicks, uh, maybe also some other, uh, some, 
some of you can can come in there. Question is, um, so does is there actually the, a role for electoral management and electoral dispute resolution bodies um, to really affect those trends that we have seen there, or is that ask, really kind of ask too much of those kind of of, of those institutions? So, so can can they affect these trends? And, and if yes, so what, what is their role in, in in this development? That's a great question. Um, I think that we could be more effective uh, in terms of getting information out. Um, we worked a lot with these um, CISA, which is the uh, Cybersecurity Information Cyber Cyber Information Security Agency, which is under the Department of Homeland Security. Um, our biggest issue was that they have an eleven billion dollar budget, while we have basically a fifteen million dollar budget. Their voice is going to be amplified a lot more with eleven billion dollars than we can ever do with fifteen million. And so if we were able to have more of more resources to be able to um, educate the public on on issues, um, I, I was really frustrated with the, the fact or the, the allegations of uh, the election being stolen and being uh, fraudulent for two reasons. One, there's Democrats and Republicans who run those elections, and these people are sworn to do so um in the best way possible but the other was a fundamental question that if the democrats were stealing the election from the president why didn't they do a better job of taking more house seats and they actually lost seats in the u.s congress for the house and then barely won the senate so if i'm if 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 i'm a, a party that's trying to steal an election i'm going to do so that's not going to leave any sort of way for the other party to influence the process. Um, so I'm going off the question a little bit, but it's more of um, in order to be able to fight these sorts of things, we need to, we need a couple of things. One, to be able to rein in uh, false information quickly. So we worked a little bit with Twitter and Facebook uh, so that they would snatch things down uh, quickly. The other thing is, if anyone wants to follow me on, on Twitter, at RedBlue2024, I'm actually, I got that little blue check mark. So um, you go to those folks who actually are legitimate in getting that information. Over my virtual shoulder here is a poster from the National Association of Secretaries of State that I got signed by over 30 secretaries of state um, to talk about the integrity of our elections when we were able to still meet in person and who I didn't know that we weren't going to be able to do this anymore, but those secretaries provided trusted information. So go to trusted sources um, and I'll leave it open for our other panelists to answer. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you very much. And I think that really also relates to um, a, a question that we um, that we got uh, from from one of our audience audience members it comes from uh, Bindu uh, Venkatesh actually, who's asking, so so how can we get out of there again, right? I mean, like, um, so you have already, uh, Commissioner Hicks uh, mentioned, you know, a couple of things that could be done, um, especially regarding to disinformation. So I wanted to pass that on to, to our other panelists. So, so what other ideas are there actually, like, can we get out of it at, at all? I mean, uh, Bindu is, is really uh, suggesting here that, uh, you know, isn't that this current situation kind of akin to kind of almost nihilism, right? I mean, like, so... Um, is there an alternative? Like, 
how can we reach consensus again? So that, that was the question I wanted to, to pass, pass on to the panel. Any takers on that one? Um, John? I can't allow, it's a great question, but I can't allow nihilism to win the day by default. Uh, I, I think perhaps it's, it's a lot to do with not politics. It's a lot to do with, um, or at least not conventional party politics. I mean, I think a lot of, in any country, um, the rest of what variously gets called civil society or whatever you want to call it, I think, uh, I think that body of people and of organisations uh, has a huge role to play. Uh, but they need amplifiers, as as, as does government, uh, as Tom was suggesting. And I think uh, media free, uh, media freedom, media training. I and mean, I think this is closely allied with uh, with the work that needs to be done on on that side of things. It's interesting that Tom mentioned collaboration with Twitter and Facebook again in a Commonwealth context. The Commonwealth Journalists Association is doing a lot of work around this about how you actually make a reality of media freedom in some very testing jurisdictions, shall we say, uh, and some principles that if governments at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting this year, for example, would sign up to, might help a bit. So I think the media's got a huge role, but I think us, civil society, you know, other organisations, universities, academia, also have to play a huge part in this. Thank you. Um, yes, please, um, Adam, actually. So I slightly just jumped in in front of Michael. Um, but um, I think that the, the media point is really interesting because one of the things that you find when you do any kind of polling around media, especially in the UK, is that reactions are very different for the media as a category than it is for individual uh, organisations and actors within that category. So you might get very... People basically have a tendency to treat the category as the, the, the examples within that category that they aren't fans of. So media as a category tends to do quite bad in terms of trust numbers whereas if you break it out things like the bbc um, tv news and some broadsheet newspapers do a bit better whereas you know tabloid newspapers are down at the bottom of the pit um so one one thing one thing i take away from that is that the situation isn't necessarily as, as bad as as it might seem there but i think that also kind of highlights the fact that you know existing organizations which by you know broadcast laws are meant to be you know non-partisan and neutral need to basically make sure that they are fulfilling that role and so i think one, one of the big sort of risks in, in the uk context going forward is the possibility of kind of declining trust in the bbc in particular which in part is as a you know a result of specific campaigns to try and delegitimize the bbc but um that is, is the metric I would keep an eye on as to whether or not we're going on the path to sort of yeah, nihilism or not. In the US context, it's obviously a little bit different because it's a completely different media landscape. But from a British context, that's my view on that. Thank you. And Michael, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I actually really don't think it's akin to nihilism at all, actually. I think it's pretty much the other way around. And, and it's not apathy either. And it's not about self-destruction. I think that, if anything, hostility is one of the sort of paradoxical symptoms of the fact that people really care about elections and get very emotional about them and get very emotional about democracy. And, you know, as Sarah was saying, they, they really, in a way, elections bring out their best behavior. I mean, the fact that one thing we can easily forget about the U.S. election is that it had a record turnout. And there was another question, you know, uh, also asked by, you know, one of our wonderful advisory board member, Keith van der Rijk, who said, uh, well, effectively, even though the events of January in the capital were horrible, they also showed that the system is very resilient. 
And I think he's absolutely right that, you know, the two things come together. So um, to me, this is not about nihilism. It's about another finding from our research, which is that over a third of people have already cried because of an action. And when you say that, you say one thing, which is that people care a lot and get a lot more emotional about elections than we often realize as academics, as elites and so on. And in a way, we need to, to take that emotionality into account if we want people to reconcile uh, with elections and democracy. Thank you, Michael. I actually, I, wanna, I wanted to pick up on also on, Ike, uh, on Ike's question, uh, which is, um, which which is that um, you know there there was quite a few questions in the chat uh, on Seth's question. Sorry, um, I like to um, you know, in the chat regarding really the causes, the underlying causes of um, of these trends that we are seeing, right? And and um, so to what extent you know are, are we seeing really kind of political elites? kind of steering this versus citizens, so is our focus wrong? But also, um, you know, what is the influence of populism, right? I mean, like, in that kind of sense, and populist, populist rhetoric in, uh, you know, in, in, in creating this kind of hostile attitude. So, so is it really citizens we should be focusing on, on or, um, you know, what should our focus be? Maybe I can come in there. I think there is it's definitely important to look at sort of political elites and also think about the extent to which we sort of as citizens and as voters look to them as, you know, prototypes or models for, you know, what we should be valuing, what we should be, um, how we should be behaving. There is some research that shows that if we see uh, warm relations between political elites of different parties, that tends to decrease our uh, outgroup negative attitudes more so than if we see them compromise on policy. Uh, so, for example, I think for a lot of people seeing Trump not go to the inauguration it is a sign of, of the inability of elites to overcome differences. And then how can you ask citizens to overcome those? So I think it's important to look at the, you know, the elites in this case as sort of role models. Um, I think when we, we're looking at the relationship with populism, uh, we have to think about the differences between obviously populism in, in sort of Western countries and, and the form it takes in, in more uh, left-wing contexts. So thinking about Latin American countries, obviously there's a very different form of populism there. But when we think about it specifically in the West, um, electoral hostility, obviously this sort of, this, these sort of negative attitudes and this anger and this frustration that we feel towards others, uh, you know, it does link to a breakdown in the social fabric. And so if a populist leader can come in and essentially identify the cause of that breakdown, where is, what is the root cause of this? Who is causing it? Um, and who is to blame for my suffering? Then obviously you can capitalize on these, on these existing negative emotions and link them to very clear uh, group boundaries. So you can clearly identify who is to blame um, for my suffering. And we see this with relative deprivation. So this idea that I am being deprived of resources in comparison to others in society, being a very sort of strong predictor of, of populist support in Western countries. So it is indicating that it is about comparing myself and my group to others. Um, and I think populism in a lot of Western countries does capitalize on this. Commissioner Hayes. May I just jump in on that as well? Oh, yeah. um, I was just going to say, you know, I know we're concentrating this, you know, this presentation and this discussion on the US and the UK primarily, but um, the work we do at EPO expands across um, 27 countries all across the world. And, you know, we find levels of hostility, both in um, places like South Africa, around Australia, um, in places like Mexico and Indonesia, where we also do the, um, the field work. So, 
whilst we're also, you know, really focusing on the US and the UK in this discussion, um, our findings are also applicable across the world. Um, and it's a worrying trend that we are seeing. Um, but also there's some glimmer of hope as well in some of the research that we're conducting that citizens are willing to take on the demands that are asked from them and participate in elections. Um, so we've seen some record turnouts, as Michael was saying, you know, we can't forget the fact that there was, um, you know, a really good showing despite the COVID context, people were still queuing outside polling stations and the mail-in ballot was a success you know, in general across the country, um, which was a massive logistical feat to pull off um, given the context. So I just wanted to add that, that we, you know, whilst this discussion is primarily on the UK and US, we also extend the research across the world. Commissioner. I would, well, I, would, I wanted to add that the election officials who conducted the election did a fantastic job of uh, running basically two different elections simultaneously, one with mail-in balloting and then the other for in-person voting and to do so both um, to, that we got the highest number of people ever to participate in the electoral process. Donald Trump got the most votes, the second most votes ever for a candidate, and, but he, he lost. Um, and I think that there's twofold with that. One, as as he's lived his life, he has never been told no. And so when that happened on November, in November, he couldn't really accept it. He's always been told that he is number one, that he is always a winner, and that for him to lose an election, there must have been something else going on. And so for 75 million people who voted for him to also figure out that this man has always gotten what he's wanted and always succeeded, that there's no way that he could have actually lost the election. I think that bred into a lot of the things that culminated on January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. That's one thing. But the other piece is, over the last 20 years, the rise of Google and Facebook. So if I enter something into Google, um, if I enter in Donald Trump or you know the election, I'm going to get an entirely different um result that my ex-wife is going to get and so um and we're going to we might be looking at the same candidate but we're coming at it from different perspectives and so i think google and facebook have played a role in that and not only in the u.s but around the world for a different number of elections particularly with brexit and and other aspects of it as well and so i think that there's no real way in the short term that the U.S. can regulate that. But I think in the next 10 or 15 years, we will see more regulation to basically curb some of those, um, those ways that those, that information is distributed out. Great, thank you very much. Um, actually, I, I wanted to pick up on, on this question about the more kind of a comparative perspective here as well, because there were a couple of other um, audience members who were interested in that. Uh, one of them is uh, Sonali Campion, who's an LSE alumna, and and she is really asking as well, so does that that differ at all? Um, you know, like across different electoral systems, you know. So so thinking about you know parliamentary systems, presidential systems. Um, now we have talked a lot of, as you said, about the US, the UK, also like you know, um, obviously Australia and so on. Um, do you see, for instance, that? parliamentary systems or like um, systems that use, for instance, proportional representation, you know, also like, um, are they are they kind of less susceptible than, than kind of presidential systems that might kind of polarize more? 
And I think that's a question that goes to uh, the entire audience, uh, the entire the entire panel. Michael. I mean, very briefly, as, as Sarah mentioned, we, we run the project will will run in 27 countries, but we've only started a year ago and we are sort of uh, limited by the rhythm of elections. So we, we haven't got everything in. But on the face of it, I would say, no, it doesn't really, it, it's certainly not limited to majoritarian or presidential systems. And I think one very good example at the moment is Israel, which is going to vote yet again. Uh, and where the you know the feelings we get from the population are actually very similar to what you would get uh, in the US and the UK, even though it's parliamentary and extremely proportional. Mm -hmm. Any diverging opinions on that? That that this type of you know like more like institutional um, aspects might matter. Um, I think we have a relative consensus here on um, on the panel on that question. Yeah. So so maybe um, I I'd, I'd like to. Um, to uh, go over to questions that are a bit more kind of specific on, for instance, um, electoral missions, again, and obs observa electoral obs observatory missions, and particularly also how, how you conduct, because you mentioned that, John, before, like, um, you know, how, how, how you do that in a virtual kind of uh, context, right? I mean, like, also during the pandemic. Um, and that's a question uh, from Sonia Wolf, who's a visiting fellow at the LSE. Um, so, um, could could we learn a little bit more about you know like how how to do this really you know important uh, crucial job in in the situation we're in at the moment? I'll just jump in very quickly and maybe Flora and I can put a link in the in the chat so people can have a look at some some detail of how we did it. You you can't do everything is the honest truth, but you know if you stick to the standards, I think for any uh, election observation missions there are well established principles which all the main observers stick to. Election observation is very valuable. If you stick to them, it's potentially, I would say, very counterproductive if you don't. Uh, so the standards are there for a reason. If you endorse elections that don't deserve endorsement, you've done a disservice, arguably. Uh, but yeah, you've just got to try and do, in the same way that everything we're trying to do virtually, you can get a lot of the way there. You've got to be imaginative, but you can do it. But I'll, I'll post a link in the chat, if I may. Yes, of course. Um, also, maybe kind of leading on from here, um, what do you think is the, is the influence really of the uh, you know of the current pandemic on those on those trends? Um, you know, obviously, you know, a lot a lot of political discussion is moving online. Um, you know, um, electoral administration. Uh, you know, like is fewer citizens are going to the polling booth. You know, deprived of this kind of also like sanctions kind of electoral day, electoral day experience, as, as Michael or or Sarah would say, of course. Um, so moving basically the whole political process online, like how, how do you think, um, do you think that amplifies really um, the trends that we are seeing? Or is that, is that overstated really kind of this fear? Um, Michael? Yeah, I, I can give a very brief uh, technical answer. I mean, we do find that on average people who do vote online or indeed by mail tend to be more egocentric in their vote and less sociotropic. Uh, so it's very, you know, it was obviously very indispensable uh, this time around for practical reasons. But one of the things that our team is doing is that we're experimenting other ways uh, of actually making it easier to organize uh, elections under major threats, not only pandemic, but major environmental disasters, terrorist threats and so on, which would give people more of the sort of societal experience of sort of, you know, being part of something um, collective and we think that this triggers very different psychological mechanisms, make them feel a lot more about other people and so on, um, and would be useful. Uh, but yes, the answer to your question is, otherwise, if we just use a very crude 
move to um, being online, then we risk actually increasing those negative feelings. And that's what we try to mitigate. Commissioner Hicks, do you, do you agree with that point of view um, in, in terms of, you know, like online administration, you know, of, of elections? I do. I do. I think that we have to figure out how to adjust, but I do think that uh, Fester is correct in, in sort of uh, his assessment there. Thank you. I think the last question really uh, for our panel comes from a sixth form student from Portsmouth, uh, Joshua Setford, and, and he's asking, um, so um, I think it's a question about the political turnover or the lack thereof, really. Um, you know, if, if, if I've, he's saying basically, if I've lived in a, in a constituency, you know, where I have not seen any kind of change, right? Maybe I, you know, like, it's not been the party that I, um, I usually kind of vote for. And they have been, you know, like representing that constituency for 16 years, for, 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 you know, for, for all my kind of adult life, right? Um, how can I not be hopeless in that kind of sense? You know, should I just be sitting there and accepting this? So, so it's really kind of that, you know, I think what, what this really gets at is, is, is this, this kind of question of, 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 of turnover like, and, and, you know, letting some other party also in, in that sense. I don't necessarily think that there needs to be a turnover in party, but more a turnover in the individuals representing that party and bringing in new ideas and so forth. Um, one of the things I didn't talk about when, when I studied in London for the entire year is that I, can, I was part of two internships, one at the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament and the other for Roland and Salaberry and Casey. And so it was a left-leaning organization and a right-leaning organization. And so I was able to see politics in the UK on both sides in that sort of realm in terms of uh, participation in different things and so forth. But I also think that there is no one party that's going to give you exactly everything that you're looking for. Um, and so if you are dis, uh, in franchise of what you believe that party is doing, run, run for that office, be a part of the solution. Um, so if you don't like what you're seeing, change that. And so, um, and I always say that with the folks who were disenfranchised with the previous election, you don't like the, how the election was run, become a poll worker, become an election worker, see, see it from the inside. And then you'll see that these sorts of things that you're hearing about in terms of fraud and disinformation are not necessarily true. And therefore, you see it from your own perspective. I think that's a fantastic note on, on which really to end this event today. It was an immense privilege um, to chair. And, uh, you know, like, big thank you to all the panelists. Big thank you to our audience uh, for taking uh, the time out of your busy days uh, to join us today. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again at another LSE event soon. Thank you very much.